pride has long been placed at the top of the list of seven deadly sins, but in contemporary culture, pride is thought of more as a virtue than a vice. The acceptance of pride and boasting as patterns of life and even as identities is concerning because it contradicts the biblical perspective on pride. Throughout the Bible, the biblical authors are concerned about pride because it's fundamentally pride that gets between us and God. Pride orients a person to himself or herself and turns them away from God and the salvation that's been offered in Jesus. And in these final verses in Romans 3, Paul identifies the major implication of our salvation. It is that pride and boasting is put to death. He writes in verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. For those who have recognized and received the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, boasting and pride are excluded. So we'll consider this more fully this morning. But to do so, I think we need to clarify what we mean by pride and boasting. And then we'll consider what we might be tempted to be proud about. And then finally, we'll think about what it means to boast in Jesus. Let's begin by clarifying what we mean by pride and boasting. When we talk about pride and boasting, we need to distinguish between um, the sinful pride and boasting that Paul talks about and other things that we might call pride but are not sinfully so. Um, Paul himself participates in certain kinds of boasting. There are certain things that Paul thinks it's right to boast about. So, for example, in Romans, he talks about boasting in the hope of the glory of God that's graciously obtained through Jesus, through faith, in Romans 5, 2, and 11. Um, this type of boasting we might call exulting or exalting, but it's distinguished from sinful boasting. Um, boasting in God or Christ is not problematic. It's desirable. Paul also, though, boasts in other Christians. So, for example, he boasts in the Corinthian Christians at their generosity. And he even hopes that Christians will boast in him and what he is doing for the sake of the gospel. So clearly not all boasting is sin. When Paul condemns boasting, he's condemning an attitude of pride that asserts the self as superior over others. Um, to clarify more fully, I want to draw on an article by this guy, Paul Sands, where he identifies two concepts that are sometimes confused with sinful pride. Um, first, sinful pride should not be confused with self-respect or proper self-esteem. There is a right kind of self-respect that does not imply feelings of superiority. Um, Self-respect is actually a virtue in which a person recognizes their value even as they admit their faults. A proper self-esteem is a barometer that rises and falls um, with the proportion of someone's behavior and the quality of one's life. So good people should actually feel good about themselves. When you're living rightly, you should feel good about that. And when you're living poorly, you should not feel good about that. Um, Self-respect is a sober and accurate judgment of the self. That's not pride. Um, 
it's thinking sensibly about oneself rather than thinking more highly than what you ought to think. That's what Paul condemns in Romans 12, 3. So self-respect or a proper self-esteem is an accurate perception of the self that does not exalt in the self, but recognizes the grace that gives way to virtue and feels appropriately about it. I'd suggest that sometimes failure to acknowledge your own accomplishments or um, the development of righteousness that God is doing in you, um, that, that is wrong. We ought to recognize these things. Um, sometimes when we fail to recognize these things, we call it humility, but it's not really humility because it's not accurate. It's not an accurate assessment of the self. Humility involves a realistic self-appraisal. Paul does not condemn that. Second, pride should not be confused with feeling proud. Um, feeling proud is a transitory emotion. Being proud is a disposition, a character trait. Feelings of pride, whether in one's own accomplishments or that of another person, does not lead to being proud necessarily. In fact, a right sense of feeling proud is often accompanied by great humility. So I want to give two examples here. Sands gives them in his article. He says, a researcher who discovers an important new cancer therapy can be elated by her achievement without being puffed up by it. Do you, you, you can feel proud by it without being prideful. Indeed, if her work leads to public honors, she will likely feel both proud and humbled by the recognition. Oh, here's another example. A man whose son joins a prestigious New York law firm might almost burst with pride, but his feelings are proper and natural expressions of love. The father identifies with his son and shares his elation. It's right to be proud in other people. Um, one of my friend's dad uh, tells her regularly, he's made a point her whole life to tell her, I will never tell you I'm proud of you. I'll tell you I love you, but I'll never say I'm proud of you. I think that's wrong. That's not what Paul is getting at here. So parents, you can tell your kids that you're proud of them, but what would be wrong is to become a proud person who idolizes your kids. Do you see how you can distinguish between these things? Ironically, I think the person who fails to take pride in an accomplishment or take pride in their children has a more subtle form of pride in their heart that incapacitates their ability to rejoice in what is good and true and beautiful. A refusal to express pride in loved ones and in others might be a result of jealousy, a resistance to rejoice with others in what is lovely and worthy of praise. Now, it would be nice if we had a good English word that could be used to denote sinful pride and virtuous pride, but we don't. So when we condemn pride, we have to be really clear what we're condemning. We're condemning sinful pride. What's being condemned in Romans is the sort of pride and boasting that expands the self and excludes the other. Selfish pride produces attitudes of superiority that eventuate in an antisocial demeanor. And these are what Paul excludes in his picture of Christian virtue. The boasting that Paul condemns is the kind that compares the self with others, leading to disregard towards them and even unjust and unkind treatment. The reason that the kind of pride that Paul condemns is a problem is because what we boast about or what we take pride in 
often reveals what we trust in, what we hope in, and what we delight in. And when we're proud in ourselves, we're showing that we're trusting and hoping and delighting in the self. When pride is directed towards the self, boasting that's according to the flesh, it's a vice, it's not a virtue. It's sin, it's not righteousness. So as we continue through the rest of the sermon, and as we think about different categories of pride, I'd encourage you to reflect on your own life. What do you take pride in? Do you take pride and rejoice in the things that are good and true and beautiful? Or do you take pride in yourself? And does your pride cut other people off from you? Does your pride lead you to trust in yourself or to trust in Jesus? These are the kinds of questions that you should be asking. So let's consider some improper sources or objects of pride and boasting. In Romans, in this text, and really throughout the letter, I think that there are at least three improper sources of pride and boasting. Uh, Self-righteousness, ethnic or personal superiority, and personal religious preferences. Let's consider each of these. First, it is sinful to boast in self-righteousness. Paul addresses this in Romans 2, 17 and 23, and then again here in 327. Earlier in the letter, Paul charged that some of his readers were boasting in the law, even as they disobeyed the law and disobeyed God. At least some of Paul's readers considered adherence to the law associated with the Mosaic Covenant as something that would bring God's favor to them. Um, They thought of the law as the way they would participate in God's righteousness. And for some of Paul's readers, mere possession of the law as a Jew made them feel like, regardless of how they lived, they had God's irrevocable favor. As a result, they found extreme confidence in their relationship with God based on who they were. They thought God was on their side by virtue of them having the law. It bred a sense of superiority. Um, Boasting in the law sounds good from one angle. It sounds like appropriate boasting because in the same phrase, they could say, I'm boasting in the law, which means I'm boasting in God. It's God's law, after all. The problem that Paul points out, though, throughout the letter is that the reign of sin corrupted the law with the result that God's righteousness was hidden and replaced not with his righteousness, but with self-righteousness. Boasting in the law was a way to boast in one's self-righteousness or self-justification. Paul argues that the greater revelation of God's righteousness in Jesus that's paired with faith eliminates boasting in the law and any form of self-righteousness. Paul disallows boasting in the law because that boasting, the object of boasting, shows what someone's putting their confidence in. And if you're boasting in the law, you aren't boasting in Jesus. If you're boasting in the law, your confidence and your commitment and your faith and your hope is in the law and not in Jesus. I would think few of us are tempted to boast in the old covenant law. But I would think that many of us are tempted to boast in our self-righteousness. Many of us are tempted to look at our lives and boast in our own righteousness, forgetting that our righteousness is a gift from God. We can subtly replace that gift of righteousness, and we can substitute it for our own. 
Now, we'd never affirm a doctrinal statement that says you can earn your righteousness, but we often live as if we do. The self-righteousness that we take pride in can be displayed on a number of ways at the individual level. None of us try to prove our self-righteousness in the same way. Only you can know that. It's displayed differently at a personal level, even at a congregational or denominational level. We can take pride in our self-righteousness because of who we are and because of our church identity. We can adopt a kind of boasting about our particular expression of Christianity, and in that boasting, our object of our confidence is revealed. And sadly, our boasting often reveals that our confidence is not in Christ, but in ourselves. So I want to suggests that in response to this text, we ought to avoid adopting an attitude of superiority as we engage with other Christians and churches in our cities and in our families. Instead, we must engage with them in humility, remembering that our inclusion in God's people is based not on who we are or what we've done or even on our convictions over various theological issues, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. And as we adopt a posture of humility and welcome toward other Christians, we'll find that our self-righteousness is not as righteous as we'd like to think. We'll see in other Christians the great grace of God's salvation through Jesus that we too have received. So we must put to death pride in our own righteousness. Second, Pride in ethnic or personal superiority is the sin. As already mentioned, for many Jews, the boasting in the law led not only to self-righteous pride, but also to an ethnic pride or a, a sense of superiority. And Paul's queries in Romans 2, 29 through 30, regarding who God is a God of, whether Jews only or also of the Gentiles, is meant to address this notion of ethnic superiority. Many Jews believed that they were part of God's elect nation, Israel, and therefore they were superior to, to other nations. They believed that God was automatically on their side, and as a result, they looked down their nose on other ethnic groups. Although their adaptation of an attitude of superior, superiority was rooted in their boasting in the law, in their identification as God's elect people, their election and giving of the law was intended to do the exact opposite. God gave them the law. He elected them to be a light to the nations so that all other ethnic groups would be drawn to worship the one true God, who's the God not just of the Jews, but also of the nations. Paul draws attention to the purpose of the law as establishing God of all peoples with his reference to the Shema in Romans 3.30. When he concludes that there's one God, he's referencing the Shema, the heart of the law, the representative of the greatest command. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 9. It says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This, according to Jesus, is the greatest command. In it hang all the law and the prophets. The law was intended to cause people to love the one God. Paul likely understands 
the heart of the law, the Shema, in light of Zechariah's comments about it in Zechariah 14.9, when he declares this, on that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone, and his name alone. The Shema, the law, was always intended to establish God's kingship across the earth for all nations. And that has come to fulfillment in King Jesus. The law was never intended to grant a nation or a person a sense of superiority over others. It was intended to demonstrate the superiority of God in Christ. Now, no longer are God's people identified by virtue of their connection to the law. They're identified as God's people by virtue of their connection to Jesus. Through Jesus' atoning death that brings about our, our freedom from sin, our redemption, our pardon from guilt, our justification, and the restoration of glory, our righteousification. It's all found in Jesus. That's what the law was intended to do. So Paul's not violating the law. He's showing its fulfillment. Now, in the sections of Romans leading up to this point, Paul showed that sin is a great equalizer. All are equal because all are sinners. And now he's showing that grace and salvation is a great equalizer. All who have found salvation in Jesus are equal in him. And what's true regarding nations and ethnicities is also true for the individual. Within the new covenant community, there is no room for personal superiority. There's no room for someone to believe that they somehow deserve to be included as God's people based on some inherent quality or act that they've done. This is what Paul addresses in Romans 12 when he says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You're part of God's people and you're here only by grace. Within the Christian community, sinful pride is not permitted. It's not permitted, at least in part, because it fails to account for God's grace that brought you into the church to begin with. More than that, the church pictured as Christ's body indicates that differences in ability or capacity and gifting should not lead to attitudes of superiority. Difference within the Christian community does not indicate better than or worse than. It simply indicates different than. And it indicates the differentiated expression of God's grace in the one body of Christ. At the individual level, pride is often, in this sense of superiority, is often disguised by vanity and sham humility. We might consider ourselves humble simply because we care so much about what other people think of us that we're always doubting ourselves and living in fear. And we could never imagine that we are actually being prideful in thinking of ourselves as superior. When we live in a way that looks like pride, but all it's doing is trying to get the approval of others, it's actually a seed of pride in our life that flourishes when we're accepted and welcomed based on who we are based on our accomplishments and our abilities. That too is pride that has to be rooted out because even though it's like a roller coaster pride that leads us from huge attitudes of superiority to really feeling downcast about ourselves, it's still the same thing. It's pride in our lives that must be rooted out. 
But pride also shows itself in outright displays of superiority with self-obsession and narcissistic tendencies of viewing the world and your family and your church as revolving around you instead of revolving around God. God's entry into the world in Jesus Christ dislodges those demeanors. It recenters the world, it recenters your world on God instead of you. And it reveals that it's God's acceptance that we should be concerned about. So when the God who does not show favoritism becomes the king of the world through Jesus, then ethnic and personal attitudes of superiority and pride and boasting have no place. Third, we're often tempted to show pride when it comes to our preferential religious practices. Um, When we read Romans, we need to keep the end of the book in mind as we go. The theology that Paul articulates in the early parts of the letters is not disconnected from his application in the later chapters. And one danger in studying the book so slowly is that we might make a disconnect there, but we need to keep it together. Um, If you're reading Romans with the end in mind, the implications about the death of pride and the death of Christ for the life of the community become really, really clear. In the Roman church, if you look at chapters 14 and 15, some Jewish Christians were insisting on a way of life that went beyond the law. They insisted on maintaining a vegetarian diet and disallowing meat. They abstained from wine and they required participation in certain holy days. Uh, The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, had no interest in adopting these practices. As a result, the Jewish Christians were inclined to look down on the Gentile Christians, and the Gentile Christians were inclined to be less than welcoming to the Jewish Christians. Both were inclined to take pride in their way of life when it came to religious preferences. They both thought that they were more likely to stand firm before the judgment of God. But Paul makes clear throughout the letter, and especially in chapters 14 and 15, that neither group would stand because of their particular religious preferences, but because Christ would make them stand. Their standing before God, Paul argues, is not determined by which group they identified with or which religious practices they took on. It would only come because of their connection to Jesus through faith. I think each of us have preferential practices in our personal lives. And even as a church, we do things in certain ways that aren't demanded by God. They're matters of conscience. There's room for difference. We have differences in musical tastes, in activities that we enjoy, in styles of clothing, in theological interests. We adopt various practices Um, that are categorized as disputed matters or matters of conscience. We work in different occupations. We vote for different candidates. We we, We adopt different styles of parenting. And the list of the differences that we all take on could go on forever. And in all these things, it's easy to become proud in what we are doing and to allow the pride for our practice to become a wedge that separates out those who disagrees with us. Our differences and our pride about them can become a roadblock to deep and meaningful relationships. Yet, 
the connection that we share was never found in any of those preferential items. Rather, our connection that we have is Christ. That connection in Christ is easily marginalized by our pride and through the assertion of our preferences. And in that assertion and in that pride, we end up with deteriorating relationships with other Christians. We sever relationships with people even though we're deeply united with them in Christ. Perhaps the greatest test of whether or not you are prideful is to consider the way you relate to other people. Do you deny belonging and welcome to other Christians because they differ with you in matters of preference? That's a hard question. And I think if we're honest, we do that all the time. Even though we would affirm, yeah, that person's a Christian, we deny them welcome and belonging because they don't agree with all of our preferences. That is sinful pride. Are you making your preferences central to your identity? Do you make who you are in Christ less about Jesus and more about your preferences? If so, then there's an indication that pride is getting in the way of the gift of Christ himself. If we're honest, I think we'll all agree at one time or another, we've probably committed pride and boasting in one of these three areas. But in Christ, it's all put to death. So how do we eliminate it? I want to suggest we eliminate pride fundamentally by boasting in Jesus. The best way to eliminate a vice is to cultivate the corresponding virtue. Uh, that's important. Often we try to eliminate vices by just saying stop it to ourselves over and over again without replacing it with the proper virtue. In this case, the elimination of the vice of pride will happen through the cultivation of the virtue of humility. And I propose that the surest way to cultivate the virtue of humility in your life is to boast in Jesus Christ. But you might ask, well, how do I do that? How do I boast in Jesus? Thank you for asking. I want to give you five ways quickly that you can cultivate boasting in Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't give us a list of five things, but if you read Romans, these are evident throughout the letter. So here are five practices that will help you boast in Jesus, embrace humility, and put pride to death. Very quickly. Number one, reflect on the gospel is a gift of grace. Paul's made clear that all people are on equal footing in their sin and that no one can do anything to fix their sin problem. As a result, salvation must be received as a gift and it can come only from grace. It's given not because a person's acts causes them to deserve it, but as an outflow of the love and the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So reflect on the free gift of the gospel that you've received and that your fellow brothers and sisters have received. You don't deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. It's only by grace. So I'd suggest that the starting point and the greatest antidote to pride is an acute awareness of the salvation that you've received from God as a gift of grace. We have nothing to offer. We can only receive. Number two, relativize your identities in light of the gospel as a gift of grace. 
Throughout the letter, Paul pushes individuals and people groups, especially Jews and Gentiles, to recognize their newfound identity as the body of Christ, the church. All other identities are not erased, but they are relativized by the newfound identity of being in Christ. No longer is ethnicity or personality or physical appearance or personal accomplishments or sense of humor or wealth or social status or denomination or any other identity marker, the fundamental identity of those who have found salvation in Jesus. Our fundamental identity is our belonging in Christ. It's our identity in him. Our fundamental identity is as a child of God, a member of Christ's body, redeemed and restored and loved by God. And if you can relativize all the other identities that you're tempted to take pride in, and you find your true identity in Jesus, then you'll be able to embrace an attitude of humility towards others who don't share your identities. Third, relate to others in love. This is the natural outflow of relativizing your identities and reflecting on the gospel. Relate to others in love. If the beating heart of the law is the Shema, the call to recognize God's rulership and to respond to him in love, the blood that's pumped through the heart is love for one another. In Romans 13.10, Paul asserts that love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is a self-giving for others. It's the opposite of pride, which expands the self and excludes the other. Love is a movement of the self toward the other in self-giving. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. When you're tempted to adopt an attitude of superiority towards others that produces a wedge between you and that other person, you must refuse to entertain that pride and instead move toward them in love and service. So if you want to fight pride, relate to others with a self-giving love. Four, connect with a Christian community. Connect with a Christian community. Related to the command to love is the concept of connecting with a Christian community. In other words, connecting to a local church in particular. Paul makes clear in Romans 12 that every Christian is just one part of Christ's body. And that within the body, every person is different. But together, the full body of Christ is put on displayed. The differences that are experienced in the community of Christ do not reflect a better or worse than it just describes the different fittednesses that are needed for the body to function, to be on the diverse mission of God. I want to propose to you that connecting to a Christian community may be the means by which your pride is exposed as you see people who are different than you and you're tempted to look down on them and adopt an attitude of superiority. But just as connection to a Christian community can be an opportunity for pride to be revealed, it can also be an opportunity for the virtue of humility to be cultivated as you learn to love the people who are different than you, because you're stuck with them. You can't run away from them every single week. And I would suggest that even more so for us as a church, we ought to imagine our church as an individual Christian and think about what kind of Christian we would be in relationship to the other churches. 
when we think about and locate our local church in relationship to other Christian churches, we'll start to see where we might tend to take pride in our preferences, but we'll also have an opportunity to be humble as we'll see other churches that adopt different practices, but nonetheless represent other parts of the global body of Christ. So connect to a Christian community locally, and then we as a church need to be the kind of church that connects with other local churches, recognizing that we ourselves on our own are not the whole body of Christ, but just a member of it. Five, cultivate habits of gratitude for God's grace in your life. Cultivate, cultivate habits of gratitude for God's grace in your life. It's no surprise that in Romans 1, Paul condemns a lack of gratitude as one of the roots of the rest of the sins that he describes in 118 through 32. Lack of gratitude is born out of an occupation with the self. Gratitude is cultivated through an occupation with God and his grace and greatness. Now, prideful people, scratch that, all people, are not inclined toward gratitude. I would suggest that probably none of us are just impulsively grateful. If that's you, talk with me and share your secret. But most of us don't have impulses of gratitude. But gratitude fights our self-orientation because it forces us to recognize that everything we have came from somewhere, someone that's not us. There are probably a lot of ways you could do this. I don't know the best way, but maybe one habit you can start to have is just to make a list every day of a thing or two you're grateful for. Um, maybe when you do family prayer at night, include a prayer of gratitude for God, uh, to God for someone you know or something that happened in your day. Um, grab on to the prayers of other Christians um, in liturgies, like books like Every Moment Holy or the Book of Common Prayer, where there are prayers of gratitude or the Valley of Vision that will help you speak words of gratitude when you don't feel it. Whatever it takes, cultivate gratitude because it will orient you away from yourself and to the great grace of God in Christ Jesus. I think all of us are inclined toward pride and boasting in the wrong things. But in the death of Christ, our pride must be put to death. So let's commit to putting pride and boasting to death together as we turn our eyes and gaze on the beauty and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this text. We receive it as a needed word, a word that perhaps is hard to hear, but we ask that you would soften our hearts to receive it and that you would cultivate in us humility as we participate in the death of Christ that puts all pride and all sinful boasting to death in him. Help us now turn our eyes on Christ and be captivated by his glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.